Roses are red, violets are blue. Trim your balls and your date will thank us too. What's up, fellas? Valentine's Day is knocking and Manscaped is the remedy for what the love doctor ordered. His prescription? The all-new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, designed to elevate your grooming game and shine like the heartthrob you are. Join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com to snag 20% off plus free shipping with code HUDDYHISTORIAN. Because that's what a Valentine's Day hero is made of. And speaking of heroes, let's talk about the hero of Valentine's Day. The Lawn Mower 5.0 Ultra. This electric trimmer features skin-safe technology, guarding your V-Day treasure against any grooming mishaps. It also comes with their brightest LED spotlight yet. It's brighter than your best romantic smile. Perfect for precise grooming, even in the trickiest of spots, and it's waterproof too, making shower shaves a breeze. But hey, that's not everything the Love Doctor ordered. This package also features the Weed Whacker 2.0 nose hair trimmer, Manscaped's liquid formulations, and two free goodies, the Shed Travel Bag and the Boxers 2.0, because comfort is king for all my dogs. And for a happy ending, there's the Manscaped Refined Cologne. It's the Valentine's Day touch to your grooming routine, Elevate your grooming routine and set the stage for a romantically smooth celebration. And for the Bearded Kings, Manscaped brings you the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. Designed to shape your scruff effortlessly, it sculpts cheek lines and maintains beard styles, giving you that suave look for your romantic moments. Seamlessly handling even the thickest of beards, it's the perfect tool for a polished, date-ready appearance. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code HUDDYHISTORIAN at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code HUDDYHISTORIAN, H-U-D-D-Y-H-I-S-T-O-R-I-A-N, because your grooming upgrade awaits, ready to charm your Valentine dates. Episode 40, Friedland and Tilsit. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope that you're all enjoying a lovely start to 2024, a year which many believe could be a seminal one in the history of our world. And while they might not have known it at the time, 1807 would prove to be a seminal year as well, and much of it came down to the next eight months of war, peace, and invasion that would define not only 1807, but much of the next decade to come. And so, after much anticipation, let's wrap up the War of the Fourth Coalition and move into the so-called second half of Napoleon's ruling conquest, a second half which he would begin at the zenith of his power. Now, after Eylau, the French were exhausted and not even having Napoleon as their master and commander would prove enough to make them want to leave their camps for another campaign. The battle, and really the entire Polish campaign up to that point, had devastated their ranks, and both mentally and physically, they were broken. The sight of seeing their comrades laying dead in the snow in the tens of thousands was something that they, even as some of the most battle-hardened soldiers in the entire world, just couldn't block out or get over quickly. And Napoleon knew it. He saw it in their eyes, and really for the first time as their emperor, he began to notice seeds of doubt in their ranks. It was clear to him that marching forward was fruitless, and, combined with his nearly depleted supply lines, 
he made the difficult decision to settle in for winter and pick up the fight again in the spring. If the Prussians did not want to negotiate a peace, Napoleon would keep on them, but he couldn't do it with the present state of his army. Even when the soldiers saluted Napoleon as he walked through the camps, he could see that their spirit was at its breaking point. And so, it was time to pitch some tents, build some fires, and repair those supply lines because once spring came, the main campaign would be back on. Now, as for the Russians and Prussians, it wasn't as if their position was any better. Bennington's men were equally as broken spiritually as their French counterparts, and they did have to continue to march to the east and settle there. Bennington, too, knew it was fruitless to continue another major offensive campaign in the winter after suffering such catastrophic losses at Eylau, and so he, too, ordered his troops to prepare their winter quarters. It would be a holding pattern until the spring, waiting to see which side would blink first, with the French making camp along the Passage River, while the Russians settled in on the Alla, both in modern-day Kaliningrad, and yes, I do believe I mispronounced that last week, it is not the Ale, but the Alla. And indeed, after Eylau, there was only one major battle that took place between that snowy day and the beginning of the spring, but as it turned out, that battle was only a week after Eylau, at the town of Australica. But wait, honey historian, didn't you just say that Napoleon's troops were exhausted on the verge of quitting? Now, after only a week, they're back to fighting? Well, yes and no. You see, Napoleon's main force that fought at Eylau, along with the numerous corps, were indeed done for the winter. But if we remember back to last episode, I did mention that Napoleon had spread his corps out across a vast area along the Vistula Valley, and to the extreme south of the French right flank sat 5th Corps under the command of General Jean-Marie René Savoy. Now, his orders were to protect Warsaw by any Russian approaches from the Nara or Boug rivers, which were well south of the main French army up north in East Prussia. However, being so far from Napoleon's army, Sabre was ordered to move further east to shore up the town of Australica to help improve communications with the emperor's main force. And so, moving east with some 20,000 men, when Benningsen got word of Sabre's movements, he sent the Estonian-born Russian general Magnus Gustav von Essen to intercept the French army and then drive them back, fearing that not doing so risked their future envelopment once the campaign season began again in the spring. Marching with 25,000 men of his own, Essen would meet Savre at Australica on February 16th. Now, Savre decided that since his men were holding the city, he could set up for a defensive battle, drawing the Russians in, before then picking them off in the tightly packed streets. Just after 9 a.m. on the 16th, General Honoré Theodore Gazon led his vanguard out of the city, meeting the enemy head-on on the road to the nearby town of Norograd, surprising and then routing them. Now, this was critical, as it prevented many reserve fighters from joining the rest of the Russian army, who simultaneously began their attack on Australica proper. Now, despite some initial resistance, the French eventually relented and let the Russians into the city, before drawing them in about halfway, and then descending on them and cutting them down street by street. The French resistance was led by General Nicolas Charles Widenot, who would be a marshal in just over a year, and is probably best remembered for having been wounded 34 times in service to his country. And he would live to the ripe old age of 80, so yeah, he was a modern-day badass. Joined soon after by another future marshal, General Suchet, the two columns forced the Russians from the city, chasing them down with cavalry and then cutting them down man by man. The Russian defeated Australica, in which they suffered some 2,500 casualties to the French 500, 
gave Napoleon the relief he needed that his communication lines in Warsaw would not be threatened by the Russians. He ordered V Corps to settle in for winter at Ostrolika, securing his supply routes to the Polish capital, and bestowed Savoy with the prestigious Légion d'honneur for his service in the battle. The Russians, meanwhile, received one more kick in the teeth and revealed that their fighting strength was paltry at best. Bennington ordered no further offensive actions, and the next month for both sides was spent recouping supplies and funneling in as many medics as possible to help treat any and all wounded who were going to be badly needed once the spring thaw arrived. And other supplies. Basically everything was in demand. Napoleon sent his aides de camp to numerous German cities, requesting horses, shoes, food, wine, medical supplies, clothing, and additional tools for their wagon train. He spent much of his free time looking after his men, taking stock of the supplies they did have, and writing back to Josephine and his brothers. He lamented the state of his men to his wife, stating that even just looking in their eyes cast a spell of despair on the normally motivated emperor. When he wrote to his brother, Joseph, about the horrors that they had witnessed over the previous three months, Joseph agreed and stated that it reminded him of the Naples campaign he had been on with Messina at the end of the War of the Third Coalition. Napoleon, reading this, became enraged and shot back at Joseph for the horrible and borderline offensive comparison. Responding, Napoleon wrote, quote, Staff officers, colonels, and officers did not undress for two months and some not for four. I myself went 15 days without removing my boots. We were surrounded by snow and mud, without bread, wine, brandy, potatoes, and meat. We went on long marches and countermarches without anything to relieve the harshness, fighting with bayonets, often under fire, having to evacuate the wounded on open sledges over distances of 50 leagues, or 130 miles. It is therefore in bad taste to compare us to the army of Naples, doing battle in the beautiful Neapolitan countryside, where there is wine, bread, oil, cloth, bed linen, a social life, and even women. Having destroyed the Prussian monarchy, we are fighting against the rest of the Prussians, against the Russians, the Cossacks, the Kalmyks, and those people of the north that once invaded the Roman Empire. And if we're being honest, Napoleon is 100% correct in this assessment. I mean, I guess if you're going to be getting shot at and having artillery blasted at you for hours on end, what better place than southern Italy, right? Now, in any event, Joseph's comments to Napoleon had obviously struck a nerve, but his response did reveal a bigger issue that he was facing. This fight was different from the previous battles he had engaged in. This war could not be won in a single battle. The enemy would not quit even after the mightiest of blows. He needed to make war impossible for the Russians and the Prussians, and he spent the winter ensuring that another Ela would not happen. He needed to shore up not only his supply situation, but also ensure that as his army marched further and further into enemy territory, they wouldn't be subjected to an additional front coming from their rear, potentially leading to encirclement and ultimately defeat. And in February of 1807, this was a distinct possibility, as the French left lay just beyond the vitally important city of Danzig. Now the city, heavily fortified, was now behind the French lines and could easily be used to funnel additional Prussian and Russian troops into the French rear from the coast. Napoleon knew this, and, wanting to ensure that his rear was secured before the spring began, he called on Marshal Lefebvre once more to take the city, telling him on the 18th of February, quote, Your glory is linked to the taking of Danzig. You must go there. And so, with that, let's talk about the siege of Danzig, a critical yet often forgotten key component to the ultimate French victory in the War of the Fourth Coalition. Now, as I just mentioned, 
Danzig held immense strategic importance as a fortress city, as well as a base from which to launch a larger campaign deep within Prussia with coalition forces now being able to attack the French rear from the coast. Now, the prevailing theory was that if the Russians and Prussians were successful, along with the Swedes and the Royal Navy, who could just as easily enter the city from across the Baltic, Austria would feel confident enough to enter the war on the side of the coalition and throw another wrench into what was already becoming an arduous war for Napoleon. Now, on the other side, if the French were able to take the city, not only would they shore up their rear, but they would be able to secure a major inlet city from the coast, as well as to gain access to valuable supplies and resources that were badly needed by the Grande Armée, namely gunpowder, grain, clothing, and horses. Thus, the city's importance was known to all, and the Prussians, Russians, and the Royal Navy did their best to fortify it as best they could in the event of a French assault. And, well, a French assault they would soon receive. Now, inside of Danzig sat about 15,000 Prussian troops under the command of General Friedrich Adolf von Kalkrut, a man who had just turned 70 years old and was present at the disastrous Battle of Auerstedt under the command of the Duke of Brunswick. Now, Napoleon, upon finding out that the Prussians were commanded by Kalkrut, scoffed and remarked that the troops inside the city were nothing more than reservists who had little experience in true combat, and he likely expected that the city would capitulate in a few weeks' time. Lefebvre, by contrast, would command an army 40,000 strong, comprising divisions of French, Polish, Italian, and German troops from Saxony and Baden. They began their preparations in late February and commenced with their advance in early March, arriving at the city's outskirts on the 19th. On Napoleon's orders, Lefebvre was to encircle the city and basically blast away at it until the spring thaw was complete, at which point they could begin to build siege trenches an inch closer and closer to the city proper. By the end of March, over 100 guns were present at Danzig, and once the thaw began at the start of April, the French were entrenched enough to begin a steady pounding of the city. Kalkrut's men fought valiantly, and despite Napoleon's prediction to the contrary, they held out far longer than two weeks, with the siege lasting an impressive 78 days. But Kalkrut's problem was that he was unable to be relieved for the initial half of the siege. You see, the Russians were well encamped and did not want to launch a prolonged campaign into Danzig across Napoleon's main army, especially in muddy terrain. It wouldn't be until early May that they even attempted to relieve the city, being ferried across the Baltic by British and Swedish vessels, but delays in their initial arrival allowed time for Lefebvre to reinforce his positions, and once the 8,000 or so Russian reinforcements did arrive, they were driven back with relative ease, suffering some 2,000 casualties in the process. Further attempts to relieve the city also failed, and the French were beginning to close in on all sides. By May 20th, Marshal Edouard Mortier arrived with his 8th Corps, and the French began their advance and storming of the city. Unable to hold out any longer, Calcourt raised the white flag and sued for peace, asking for lenient terms for his troops if they abandoned the city, which Napoleon granted. No doubt surprised at the length of the siege and the surprising vigor the 70-year-old Calcourt had shown, Napoleon allowed for the formal evacuation of the city by the Prussians with full military honors on May 24th. He was happy to provide the terms as he had just suffered some 6,000 casualties of his own, and Napoleon wanted to shore up his rear quickly before the campaign season began again in a few weeks. The Prussians and Russians combined suffered some nearly 5,000 casualties, a considerable number considering their combat force was just over 20,000. But again, they fought valiantly given the circumstances and the low odds Napoleon gave them. Nevertheless, the critical city did capitulate, and Napoleon gained the superiority he needed to ensure that his rear was covered for the summer advance. 
He would award the title of Duke of Danzig to Lefebvre the following year, and he would also establish the free city of Danzig in the fall of 1807, but we will get to that at the end of the episode. More critically, though, he secured the city's resources along with a heavily fortified base on the Baltic. But Danzig would not be the only city under siege during the late winter and early spring of 1807. Another major battle that took place even further west of the French left was the Siege of Kohlberg, which technically began on March 20th and lasted until the Peace of Tilsit, but in reality had begun in the aftermath of Jena and Auerstedt back in November of 1806. Because if you remember back to episode 38, after the battles of Jena and Auerstedt, the French pursued the stubborn Prussians deeper and deeper into East Prussia, as well as further north with the hope of giving them no route of escape via the sea. One contingent of the Grand Armée heavily pursued the Prussians into Prussian Pomerania, and its capital, Stettin, capitulated almost immediately. Now, Stettin was one of two fortress cities inside of Prussian Pomerania, the other being Kohlberg, and it was also expected that Kohlberg would quickly surrender as well. But, to the surprise of the French, as well as the city's administration, the Prussian army refused to surrender Kohlberg, and after some successful guerrilla tactics by the garrison Prussian troops, led by the wily veteran of the Jena campaign, Ferdinand von Schill, King Frederick William was determined to have the city hold out for as long as possible, and in January of 1807, he established a Freikorps, essentially a German militia, to help establish defensive positions in the city to withstand a siege. The order was to defend the city at all costs, with the hope of relief from the British and the Swedish via the Baltic to come in the spring. Now, Napoleon was none too pleased at the developments at Kohlberg. He had anticipated a rather quick capitulation like many of the other cities and provinces in the area, but the Prussians in general, and Schild specifically, were stubborn to the core. Prior to Eylau, Napoleon ordered a general, and again, soon to be Marshal, Claude Victor Perron, to take the fortress, but he was captured en route by Schill's men, who were now becoming a giant thorn in Napoleon's side. Perron would eventually be freed in a prisoner exchange for none other than Gerhard von Blücher after his capture at Lübeck back in November of 1806, but still, Schill's men further delayed the French encirclement of the city until early March, upon which a siege order was implemented by the French emperor. Now, we still have a lot to get to, and I don't want to get too bogged down in the siege of Kohlberg since, well, the siege was eventually lifted with the War of the Fourth Coalition nearing its conclusion. But, to summarize, the first few months comprised of the French attempting their best to break through the stubborn Prussian defenses, reinforcing them with men from Holland, the Confederation of the Rhine, and from the Home Guard Reserves back in France. Marshal Mortier was even called to relieve the force, but he needed to be sent back to Stroslin, where he was based, because it was also under siege from the Swedish, which is something we'll talk about in a second. Now, with the siege of Kohlberg basically turning into a stalemate, by early May, the French changed their strategy and decided to concentrate only on the eastern edges of the city, and Napoleon then began to send in more and more troops to Kohlberg to help force a victory. However, Napoleon eventually ordered the siege lifted in July in the aftermath of Friedland, with the French leaving the grounds, Napoleon now knowing that peace was all but secured. Now, I wanted to mention the Siege of Kohlberg not necessarily because of its major strategic importance to the War of the Fourth Coalition or the French Summer Campaign. Indeed, its conclusion as a status quo antebellum proved that the nearly 8,000 combined casualties were lost for naught. But because of the symbolic presence it held in Prussia, and eventually Nazi Germany years after its conclusion. The images of Schill fighting off a vastly superior French army came to symbolize German resistance to the French invaders, and it instilled a sense of national pride amongst the Prussian population. 
Indeed, Kohlberg would be referenced through much of the late 19th century, especially during the Franco-Prussian War, as a symbol of the unbreakable will of the German people. But while their fight was valiant, it would not be enough to change the course of the war, as we will soon see. Now, the last major battle before the summer campaign season came in early April, and that was the aforementioned Battle of Stralsund, or better known as the Great Sortie of Stralsund. Now, this was between the French and the Swedes, and we haven't talked about the Swedes too much throughout this series, though they are going to be a major player in the fight against the French in the coming years, so we might as well just give a quick recap on the Swedish-French diplomatic situation, which will further help us understand the Swedish reason for joining the War of the Third Coalition, a war they were still technically fighting. Yes, you heard that correctly. The Swedes were the last holdouts of the War of the Third Coalition, and they would also hold out after Tilsit, which is why the Franco-Swedish conflict is more aptly referred to as the Franco-Swedish War, a quasi-proxy war intertwined with the other larger coalitions. Again, early 19th century geopolitics are awesome, aren't they? Anyway, in 1807, the Swedes were ruled as the Kingdom of Sweden by King Gustav IV Adolf, having assumed the throne in March of 1792 at the young age of 13, but he would only gain outright control in 1800 at age 21. Now, he inherited the throne from his father, King Gustav III, who was assassinated at a palace ball in an attempted aristocratic coup in 1792, an event which no doubt left a lasting impression on the young teenager. During the French Revolution, Sweden had nominally supported the French monarchy, but they were to remain largely neutral in the Revolutionary Wars and early Napoleonic Wars as they dealt with incursions from Russia as well as internal instability. But when Napoleon came to power, Gustav believed that he was a firebrand and a man who was bringing nothing but pain and suffering to Europe. Barely 27 and looking for glory, Gustav decided to join the War of the Third Coalition in October of 1805, though their contributions were minimal and, quite frankly, unimpressive. Refusing to accept a peace, Sweden stayed at war with France, and once the Fourth Coalition began, they signed on immediately. As we've seen to this point, however, the War of the Fourth Coalition has not gone much better for Sweden, including their lackluster performance at Lubeck, in which their only victory came in them finding their future king in Marshal Bernadotte. Nevertheless, their overall position was one of extreme passivity, and the French, sensing this, marched into their continental holding of Swedish Pomerania in early 1807. Entering with about 12,000 men, Marshal Mortier was ordered to blockade the port city of Stralsund and began to put it under siege, with the goal of preventing it from receiving aid from the mother country and, more critically, the British. But, as we just mentioned, Mortier would be needed for the siege of Kolberg, and with him taking nearly half of his force with him, the Swedes saw their opportunity to inflict a defeat on the French by launching a quick and decisive sortie on the now-halved French army with the goal of pushing them completely out of Swedish Pomerania. Mortier entrusted the remaining French forces to General Charles-Louis Diondonier-Grandjean, and, well, let's just say he was a bit overwhelmed. Despite fighting bravely for the first day on April 1st, the French were no match for the 6,000 or so Swedish regulars who kept pushing. Grandjean and his men fought bravely, but they were forced to capitulate and eventually left Swedish Pomerania on April 3rd. Upon Moitié's return, the French were able to push the advancing Swedes back to Swedish Pomerania, but the borders remained as they were prior to January of 1807. It was only the second coalition victory during the War of the Fourth Coalition, though the French losses in Swedish Pomerania would be recouped before the end of the year. 
Again, though, like in the Third Coalition, Sweden wouldn't make peace with France, and their proxy war would continue into 1810. Not that King Gustav would see it through, however. He, like his father, would be the victim of a coup attempt by the officers in his army following Russia's occupation of Finland in 1809. His uncle, Charles XIII, would take over as king with his successor, being none other than Marshal Bernadotte, but we will get to that in due time. And now with all of that covered, that pretty much gets us up to speed through the spring of 1807. Because as harsh as the winter was, it would eventually end, and by the time the campaign season started up again, Napoleon had gotten what he needed. He gave his troops time to recover, he patched up his supply lines as well as his supply stores, thanks in no large part to securing Danzig, and he was also able to sequester enough artillery to begin a massive offensive against the coalition forces. He was also able to pool reserves from his allies, and by the end of May of 1807, Napoleon had amassed a total force of over 225,000 men, while the combined Russian and Prussian forces numbered only 120,000. Now, Napoleon's plan was to begin his offensive on June 10th, but once again, Russian General Benningsen decided to make the first move, forcing Napoleon's hand. On June 2nd, Benningsen concentrated his main force in nearby Healdsburg before ordering an advance on Marshal Ney's VI Corps at Gunstadt. Now, the goal was to wipe out Ney's army by flanking him from all sides, with particular concentration on Ney's left, commanded by Marshal Bernadotte at the nearby town of Spaden, while simultaneously attacking Marshal Soult's IV Corps in the center at Lomin. When the Prussians, under the command of General Lestock, began firing on Bernadotte's position a day earlier than originally ordered, June 4th, Bernadotte now became aware of the coalition's intentions, and he began to take up defensive positions. The following day, Lestock sent the division under the command of General Major Michael von Rembau to attack Bernadotte, and the original instructions were for them to fire on the French positions until weak enough to move in for a full-scale assault. But, convinced by his adjunct, Lestock ordered a frontal assault across a single bridgehead. Now, this massive blunder was capitalized on immediately by the French, who waited for the Russian divisions to be in close enough range where they were able to eviscerate them column by column with their artillery fire. In a matter of minutes, the Russians turned and ran, pursued by the French cavalry and suffering some 500 casualties in less than an hour of fighting. The French suffered few casualties, though Bernadotte was shot in the head and would be out of commission for the rest of the battle. The first part of Benningsen's plan had failed miserably, and Ney's left was secured, but the fighting that day had just begun. Now, meanwhile at Lomitten, Russian General Dmitry Dokhtarov advanced on Soult's positions, targeting the bridgehead and the defenses the French had built around it overnight. The Russians attempted to cross the bridge and take the nearby woods several times, each time being pushed back after heavy fighting. General Division Claude Cahal Sancerre, not to be confused with Marshal Laurent Sancerre, stood out for his bravery and determination in not letting the Russians cross the bridge, and by the early evening, the Russians decided to fall back on their original positions, but not without inflicting heavy losses and nearly burning the town to the ground. Now, the outcome of Lomitten is disputed, with some claiming it a tactical French victory for holding their ground, but a strategic Russian victory in their ability to push the French back initially and then burn Lomitten to ashes. Nevertheless, the French would command the bridgehead, and the Russians would not attack it again. The Russians suffered some 2,000 casualties to the French 1,000, but Dokhtarov was commended for his actions as well, and he will be a big contributor to the Russian cause during the French invasion of 1812. Lastly came the assault on Ney at Gutstadt-Deppen, which, like the other battles, began early in the morning. 
Now, opposite Ney was Russian General Bagration, and in his back sat some 65,000 men. Ney, by comparison, had just under 18,000, and when Bennington ordered Bagration to advance, I can only imagine his horror that anybody would have when they see an army nearly four times the size of theirs approaching at full steam. But, as we've probably come to notice by now, Marshal Ney was not anyone. Bagration would attack and quickly capture the nearby village of Altkirk, with relative ease, mind you, but this allowed Ney to pull up troops from other nearby villages to launch a quick sortie on Bagration's center, inflicting 500 casualties in a surprise assault. From here, Ney, knowing he was badly outnumbered, used skirmishers to delay the Russian advance while ordering a withdrawal from Gudstadt. Now, the Russians would quickly occupy the town, but Ney was able to take defensive positions near the town of Akendorf to the northeast, with the lake and river protecting his right and center, respectively. On Ney's left was Deppen, and the next day, June 6th, the Russians would use this only available flank to attack Ney, who ordered his men to hold their positions. With attacks beginning at 5 a.m., the Russians assaulted Ney from all sides, hoping to envelop him and inflict a decisive victory on the French, and possibly push them back further south. Now, they were successful initially, pushing Ney's left and center back throughout the course of the morning. But critically, the Russians decided to move their men from the French right to put further pressure on their unguarded left. Now, this allowed Ney time to shore up his right flank along the lake, and by the day's end, he was able to order a strategic retreat without incurring further losses. Much like Lohmann, Gunstadt Deppen would be a tactical Russian victory, but a strategic French one, as Ney's Sixth Corps was able to withdraw successfully and live to fight another day, and in just over a week, that's precisely what would happen. Now, the three battles of Gudstadt, Deppen, Spaden, and Lohmann provided Napoleon a serious look at what the coalition forces had been preparing for during the winter. And while they were able to inflict significant losses on the French, most estimates calculate the French casualties combined at over 3,000, they were still unable to achieve a decisive victory over Napoleon. And, well, if anything, they only hurt their chances of doing so, as their minor victories came at considerable cost as well, with the coalition suffering over 6,000 casualties in two days of fighting. Benningson was reportedly furious at the lack of initiative by his generals to not go after Ney and finish him when they had the chance, knowing now that the French would be wise to their strategies moving forward. And, well, that's exactly what would happen. With this knowledge in hand, Napoleon decided to finally go on the offensive and launch his counterattack. Now, Napoleon had anticipated that Benningsen would now concentrate his forces at Gunstadt, with the Russians having captured the city and the French withdrawing. But in interviewing Russian POWs in the following days, Napoleon learned that Benningsen was actually marching to the well-fortified town of Healsburg after he learned of Napoleon's intention to retake Gunstadt. It would be at Healsburg where the penultimate battle of the War of the Fourth Coalition would be fought. Now, after learning of Benningsen's intention to retreat, Napoleon sent Murat and Ney in the lead to chase him down. Prior to the battle, Napoleon had assumed that he was chasing down their rear guard and allocated just over 50,000 men to engage the Russians. He wouldn't know until the day after the battle that he was, in fact, facing off against their entire force of some 100,000 men. With his entire army, he could have easily crushed them. But unfortunately, Healdsburg would turn out to be nothing more than inconclusive carnage. On the morning of June 10th, Napoleon ordered Marshal Murat and his cavalry to begin the assault on Benningsen at Healdsburg. But the Russian commander had his men install strong fortifications throughout the night 
and Murat's charge, while initially successful, was eventually halted when Bagration was moved over to help stall the French, while Bennington shored up his left flank, anticipating another attack there. Soult's infantry then arrived and did just that, and then aid was sent to Bagration, and they were able to stop both Murat and Soult's attacks dead in their tracks, with both sides suffering heavy losses throughout the afternoon. Bagration, seeing this and knowing that it would only lead to a stalemate against a much larger force, ordered a successful withdrawal and moved his unit to the rear. Now, by the early evening, Napoleon had arrived with Marshal Long, and he took over command of the chaotic scene. He ordered General Division Claude Jus Legrand to attack the Russian center, where there was a large redoubt that was critical to seizing the city, as well as breaking the army into two. Now, while they were successful in breaking through, a Russian unit under Prince Andrei Ivanovich Gorchakov counterattacked and then seized the redoubt back, inflicting massive casualties on Legrand's forces to the horror of Napoleon. Despite multiple attempts at breaking the Russian center, the French were repulsed time and time again, and Napoleon then decided to focus his attacks on the Russian right, but even with Lon at the lead, these attacks were also unsuccessful. The scenes were reportedly so chaotic that much of the enemy fire nearly reached Napoleon himself, with his generals requesting that he leave the battlefield and threatening to pull him away if he refused to do so. With Prussian reinforcements now close by, the French were forced to pull back. Both sides would exchange heavy cannon fire until darkness fell, and while Bennington likely could have ordered his troops forward in pursuit of the French, fate struck and he was suddenly hit with a high fever and his commands were not clearly laid out. With casualties high on both sides, the Russians and French pulled back to their original positions. Neither side had achieved the decisive victory that they were looking for, and the draw came at a great cost to both armies. The French had suffered upwards of 13,000 casualties, while the Russians anywhere between six and 10,000, depending on the source. In reality, though, the French suffered a humiliating psychological defeat in hindsight. As we mentioned, despite having nearly twice the men as the Russians, Napoleon only committed about a quarter of his total forces, and instead of getting the decisive victory he had long desired, he was forced back across the Allah to lick his wounds and rethink his strategy. This time, however, he wouldn't need to wait an entire winter to get the ultimate battle he had long been waiting for. Now, after the events of Healdsburg, Napoleon figured that the Russians would retreat back north to Königsberg and restock. He then ordered his army to follow and track them down, sending Long's advance guard from his right flank to monitor their movements. Napoleon also knew that in order for the Russians to reach Königsberg quickly, they would need to recross the Alla from the east bank to the north via a bridgehead at the small town of Friedland, and so he sent Lawn and his 16,000 men there to report on the situation. But when Lawn arrived at Friedland, the reality of the situation became clear to him. The unit just south of the town was not their rear, but in fact, the entire Russian army. Now, at this point, Napoleon needed to resupply, so he sent Murat and 60,000 men, along with Sultan de Vu's corps, to capture Königsberg with its large cache of weapons and food, while he himself went back south to Eilau with 80,000 men for the same reason. On the afternoon of June 13th, an advanced Russian cavalry unit marched to the east bank of the Alla, opposite Friedland, and reported that a small French corps was posted there. When news of this arrived at Bennington, he ordered his cavalry to smash them, and he figured that that would allow them enough time to cross to the left bank, into Friedland, before the larger French army could arrive to relieve them. Lon, again commanding only 16,000 men, soon took on the brute force of a 50,000-man-strong Russian army, charging directly at him. Now, to preface, 
Bennington had no intention of fighting Napoleon's main army here at Friedland. In fact, the reason he had attacked Lawn was to inflict a quick victory on that small force before moving his entire army to Königsberg to resupply. But this small force was led by Jean Lawn, one of Napoleon's finest marshals, and his stubborn resistance and steady withdrawal was enough to allow Napoleon's main army to come and finally meet Benningsen for the decisive Battle of Friedland. So yes, let us now dive into the battle that ended the War of the Fourth Coalition. Once Benningsen's force made contact with Lom, the skillful French marshal sent word to Napoleon, telling his aide de camp, quote, Ride your horse into the ground if you have to, but tell the emperor we're fighting the entire Russian army. Lon was under siege almost immediately, but he was always calm under pressure, and he used his skirmishers to fight into a skilled delay as he slowly gave up ground while inflicting enough damage on the Russian vanguard to slow their advance and buy Napoleon time to come to his aid for Melau. Friedland was only about 15 miles away from Melau, and the summer heat had dried up the spring mud, making the terrain ideal for fast charges on the Russian position. Lon fought brilliantly through the evening, and when Napoleon arrived with some 80,000 men, Benningsen was committing all of his troops over to the west bank of the Alla at Friedland. It was a huge risk, however, because as his men had built pontoon bridges throughout the night of June 14th, they unwittingly created a bottleneck by building them directly across from the city, meaning that any retreat for an army of some 50,000 men would have to run through densely packed streets and the river to safety. Simply put, the Russians had their backs to the river, and it would be a mistake that Napoleon would not let them get away with. By dawn, about 80% of Benningsen's forces had crossed the Alla and were reinforcing positions along its left bank and in front of Friedland. His lines extended all the way from the upper bends of the river to the heavily wooded Sortlack Wood. Once again, Benningsen would order the first attack. He called in a large Cossack force to attack the village of Heinrichsdorf to the west of the French left, which was critical in concentrating the fire of the main army under Napoleon by turning their left flank but they were intercepted by General Grouchy's cavalry, and after over an hour of charge and countercharge, Grouchy was successful in holding the left flank firm and pushing the Russians back to Friedland. Further south of the Sortlack Wood, General Wiedenow of Lon's Sixth Corps was charged at by grenadiers of the Russian left wing under the command of Bagration. Now the dense forest and then suddenly open fields led to difficult fighting, but Wiedenow eventually pulled back to the safety of the forest. These two actions by Wiedenow and Grouchy, however, allowed for Marshal Mortier to swing behind Grouchy and head south to reinforce the French center, driving Russian Cossacks out of the village of Schwanau in the process. Now, with the French positions now in place, Napoleon arrived with an additional 40,000 men by noon. Behind him came General, as well as future Marshal, Claude Victor Perron in charge of Bernadotte's 1st Corps, the rest of Marshal Ney's 6th Corps, and the Imperial Guard led by Marshal Bessier. Napoleon used the present lull in the action to scan the battlefield and confirm Benningsen's precarious position. Noting the date, June 14th, as the seventh anniversary of his triumphant victory at Marengo, he believed that Providence was on their side and that they would win the day. Turning to his marshals, he gave his orders, famously remarking, quote, We won't catch the enemy making a mistake like this twice. The orders went as follows. Marshal Ney and his 6th Corps were to head south and take the line between the village of Postlinen and the Sorlac Wood, with Lon to his left to reinforce the French center, and then repositioning Mortier at Heinrichsdorf to the north to shore up the left. 
Napoleon then placed the first corps and the Imperial Guard in reserve behind the post line in line, while he concentrated more cavalry closer to Heinrichsdorf. Napoleon made it clear he wanted to attack the Russian left and pin them back to the river, where he could then cut them down in mass as they piled back up on their right. Now, while Napoleon was issuing his orders, Bennington was also surveying his opponent from across the field before realizing that his worst nightmare had indeed come true. The entire French army was now in front of him, waiting to pin the Russians against the river. Still sick from the campaign, Bennington ordered a retreat back across the Alla, but Napoleon was not going to let him get away this time. At 5.30 p.m. on June 14th, Three cannon volleys from Victor's First Corps signaled to the Russians that Napoleon was going to attack and they would need to stay and fight. Napoleon gave his order and Marshal Ney charged first from the Sorlak Wood, pushing Bagration's infantry back to the left banks of the Alla. But across the river, the Russians had positioned heavy artillery, which now fired on Ney's troops who no longer enjoyed the benefit of tree cover. Bagration then rallied his cavalry and pushed Ney back to the fringes of the forest, but Napoleon was actually banking on this to happen, as it now freed up Victor's first corps to move in on Ney's left and gave them space to use their artillery. 30 guns firing at nearly point-blank range on the Russian infantry under the command of General Alexandre Antoine Hurot de Saint-Armand. In a matter of only five minutes, hundreds of Russians lay dead on the hard, dry land on the banks of the Alla, thanks to the devastating case shot which Saint-Armand employed, sending out masses of bullets and inflicting casualties in mass. With Bagration barking out to his men to keep order, the Russian morale quickly sank, and they fell back to Freeland around the riverbend, incurring even greater losses as a result of their suboptimal positioning. Now joined by Ney and his 6th Corps, the two French units pushed them back all the way to Freeland. Bennington ordered his elite Imperial Guard to help cut the French off, but they were outmanned and, quite frankly, outclassed, and sent running back to Freeland as well. At this point, Benningson was hoping, like at Eilau, that the setting sun would allow for a respite and give them a chance to move east. But it wasn't winter. The French could now employ their deadly speed with the extended daylight hours. And Napoleon did just that. With the chaos now extending to the city itself, the French could see many of the homes in Friedland set on fire. Knowing he had them in position, Napoleon gave the order for his center and left to join the attack to finish off the Russians, and ultimately finish off the war. Surging forward with Marshals Mortier and Lamp, the French overwhelmed the Russian right and center. Seeing the massive charge by the main body of the French army directly across from him in his position on the right bank of the Alla, Benningson could only watch as his men quickly ran back to try in desperation to cross the river to safety. But the Alla is a fast-flowing and deep river, some banks being as high as 30 feet, and many Russian soldiers drowned in the chaos, with only a few small units on the Russian right making it back across safely. The rest were either cut down or captured by the pursuing French. Further south in Friedland proper, it was no better. With fires raging in the city, soldiers choked on the smoke and got lost in the crowded confusion. By nightfall, the battle was mercifully over, with the French suffering some 10,000 casualties, while the Russians suffered over 20,000, nearly half of Benningson's entire force. But, unlike at Jena, Napoleon did not order a further pursuit of the Russians. With his men pillaging the town that evening, he remarked that doing so would have made it harder to make peace with Tsar Alexander should he continue on and massacre the Russian soldiers, many of whom actually impressed Napoleon with their bravery. Plus, 
Napoleon, exhausted from a campaign now approaching nine months and three full seasons, was desperate himself to make peace. His soldiers were tired of marching basically to the end of the Russian frontier. They had just won a major battle that their emperor had clamored for for months. Now it was time for them to go home and enjoy the spoils of war. Everyone waited with bated breath on what the Russian next move would be. Fortunately for the French, Russia saw the writing on the wall. Benningsen, who, let's be honest, had basically been deathly ill the entire campaign, wasn't physically fit to continue on, and he moved his troops completely out of Königsberg and back into Russia across the river Neman. Upon hearing news of the defeat, Alexander's top advisors implored the young emperor to make peace with Napoleon. Himself seeing a bright mind he could work with, Alexander obliged, and on June 19th, he sent an envoy led by Prince Dmitry Lobanov-Rostovsky to Napoleon's camp to seek an armistice. The French marched all the way to the left banks of the Neman to the town of Tilsit, where they watched as the Russians burned the last bridge connecting East Prussia to Russia. It would be here where one of the most historical peace conferences took place. Now before we get into the treaties of Tilsit, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Prussians, who by now couldn't believe that the vast majority of their country had been conquered by the French in just under a year. Helpless to the fact that they were banking on the Russian reinforcements to turn back the French, now they were faced with the worst possible outcome. A defeated Russia and a French emperor hellbent on seeking retribution for the Prussian miscalculations leading to tens of thousands of French casualties. It would be to the shock of no one listening to this episode that when Napoleon met the two emperors the following week, King Frederick William was to be treated as some sort of bastard cousin with his country being carved up like a wedding cake. On June 25, 1807, Emperor of the French Napoleon Bonaparte and Tsar Alexander I of Russia met in the middle of the River Neman on an opulent raft, where they embraced for the first time, sparking what was described as an instant friendship. Perhaps trying to curry favor with Napoleon, one of the first things that Alexander said to the French Emperor was, quote, I hate the English as much as you do, to which Napoleon replied, quote, Then we have already made peace. Toasting each other with some of the finest champagne and wine of France, the two emperors spent the next week holding lavish banquets, military parades, and award ceremonies in honor of their troops. They conversed long into the night, with both men seeing in the other a partner that would greatly benefit them both in the long run. They conversed about politics, the future of Europe, Great Britain, and how the two could become the most powerful partnership in history to that point. In the span of only a few days, they had become almost the best of friends. Prussian King Frederick William, on the other hand, was offered no such courtesy. Now, as I mentioned, the Prussian monarch was present at Tilsit, but he was ill-received not only by the two emperors, but by the troops present, with neither army saluting or standing to attention when he arrived. This was in contrast to Napoleon and Alexander, who both received loud cheers and parades when they appeared together in front of the amassed armies. Frederick William was also little respected by either Napoleon or Alexander, both men finding him boring and a sheep to his wife in the war council. In one anecdote, William was said to have spoken to Napoleon for over half an hour simply about his military uniform, to which Napoleon, bored to death of the conversation, curtly said before walking out, quote, You should speak with my tailor. It was a perfect metaphor for the conference as a whole between the three countries. That is to say, a conference between Russia and France on how they would punish Prussia and embarrass this little man who somehow held the title of king. And well, embarrass him, they did. Over the course of the next two weeks, Russia, Prussia, and France negotiated on the concessions that would be made in exchange for the peace, 
But in reality, it was Prussia that paid the heaviest price. Napoleon knew that asking much from Russia would incite future resistance, so he only asked for and received the Greek Ionian islands in the Mediterranean as their one concession. Russia even agreed to join the continental system against Britain, solidifying Napoleon's position as the master of Europe and removing the great giant as an enemy. All that was left was to carve up Prussia, and that's exactly what Napoleon did. Nearly a third of Prussian territory was taken by Napoleon to create French client states. He created the Kingdom of Westphalia to the west of Magdeburg, something which Queen Louise of Prussia herself begged Napoleon not to do, even crying in his presence to prevent its cessation. Napoleon, though, was unmoved and went ahead with the plan, even promoting his youngest brother, Jerome, as Westphalia's king. To the east, he created the Duchy of Warsaw, much to the delight of the Polish, who now believed that they had achieved their long-begotten goal of the restoration of their country. But it, like many of Napoleon's redrawings of Europe, was another mere client state which was ruled, as we mentioned in our last episode, by Saxon King Frederick Augustus. Nevertheless, in its establishment, Napoleon gained a powerful ally, and some of his finest soldiers over the course of the next eight years would come from Poland, spurred by their hatred for both Austria and Russia alike. Prussia was also ordered to pay a massive indemnity to France, something which was made all the more difficult since it had just lost around 5 million citizens to Napoleonic client states, and it was also obligated to join the continental system. Now, the peace did help trample Prussian aggression towards the French in the short term, but it lit a fuse of deep-seated hatred amongst the Germans towards Napoleon, which also left a deep emotional scar in their memories, furthering the resistance towards them in the coming years. Nevertheless, in July of 1807, there was no questioning who the master of the continent was. After Tilsit, Napoleon was at the absolute zenith of his power. He had dominated Europe in a way not seen since the days of Charlemagne, and it was clear to those around the world that he was quickly becoming, if he wasn't already, the most powerful leader on earth. Returning to France in late July after having been away for over 300 days, the longest absence of his career, by the way, he was happy to finally enter an era of peace with the major powers on the continent. But, as we've learned by now, that peace was to be short-lived. Because while much of our attention has been paid to Central Europe, there was a small fire burning to the southwest of France. Old British ally and boycotter of the continental system, Portugal, was drawing the ire of the French emperor, and he was keen to put an end to it. And so, next episode, we will begin our discussion on the invasion of Portugal, which marked the beginning of one of Napoleon's great blunders, the Peninsular War. <laughs>